you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John. 1 John, let's stand as we open God's Word together. Continuing the series, Are You For Real? And there are two segments of people that need to be asking themselves this question. Some of us need to ask the question because one of the most often questions I get as a pastor is somebody saying, Pastor, I, I don't know for sure that I'm saved. I struggle with that. I struggle with knowing that, that I'm a child of God, that I'm in the kingdom, that I'm, that I'm part of the people of faith. And then there are so many others of us who need to ask the question, somewhere along the way, after we put our faith and trust in Christ, did we begin to start going through the motions to where we're not getting real with God and we're not getting real with our family, we're not getting real with each other in the body of Christ. We need to be for real with one another. Well, let's pick up where we left off last week when we uh, looked in John chapter 1 and kind of closed out that chapter. And uh, keep in mind, as we look at chapter 2 now, beginning with verse 1, that the original letters did not have numbers. Man went back later and numbered the verses so we could find them. And so imagine just kind of this, this what we discussed about that relationship with God and, and walking in His righteousness. This, this letter just continues right into this, this paragraph and he says in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things. I told you that he would tell you again and again why he's writing, right? He says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice or substitute for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him by keeping his commands. The one who says I have come to know him without keeping his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we look at a passage like this and it can be so intimidating or encouraging depending on what our walk was like yesterday or this past week or maybe even over the past months. And for those who are in a, a sweet spot in their journey with you, it, it reinforces that something is, is real happening in our heart and life. And then others here, Lord, know that they don't at least feel in their hearts as close to you as they have before. Or they know they're, they're hiding or, or feel like they're hiding something from friends and family and as they go through the motions. A little religion on the side, but nothing real in the heart. And Lord, I pray that today your Holy Spirit would so speak to us that the Word of God would so pierce and change our hearts that we would not leave this place without knowing that we're for real we begin to see these evidences of what being real looks like. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We're talking about real loyalty this morning as we look at this text, and we'll see how he picks up this thought again toward the end of chapter 3. Real loyalty being an evidence. I, I read a story years ago about a forest fire that had taken place 
and a man was grieving as he had, had, had heard about his dog who had been a faithful friend. You know, they say dogs, their quality is loyalty. Um, but, but if a dog is well-trained, it can be a really loyal dog. And this, this dog had died in this forest fire. And the man was uh, grieving the loss of this dog, and he, he was even regretting his own words. He said, you see, I had this dog so well-trained that I, I, I had him buy a tree, buy a bucket, guarding my lunch while I was hunting. And I simply said, stay. And I knew he would stay by that bucket. I knew he would stay by that bucket until I returned. And he said, unfortunately, that's where they found him after the fire. He had stayed even to the point that it cost him his life. Well, Jesus, when we are obedient and when we are loyal to him and faithful to him, he stands with us in the fire and sometimes delivers us from the fire, sometimes he delivers us through the fire, but I believe he's looking at this world today and he's looking to see if there are some followers who will be faithful and loyal and obedient like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who, who, who would say, come what may, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to be faithful, I'm going to be obedient to him until he calls me home. Loyalty is often defined with two Words. If you begin to look up definitions for the word loyalty, you'll find two other words that we often have to look up the definitions to. One of those words is faithfulness. Being faithful is a quality of loyalty. Another word is the word allegiance. And, and in the, the biblical pattern, this value of allegiance and, and loyalty speaks of a superior uh, or being faithful to a superior individual or a superior cause, no matter what it costs us. Here in John's letter, we read that the authenticity of our faith is not something that's based on feeling. It's based on concrete evidence. And I'm glad, church, that we have a faith that we can feel. I'm glad that there are times in my life where I get so overcome with what Jesus has done for me that it puts a song of celebration in my heart, that it might bring laughter, that it might bring tears of joy and brokenness. I am grateful today that I have a faith that I can feel. But let's be assured of this. Every religion out there can be accompanied by feelings. And so the authenticity of our faith is not based on what we feel on the inside, but on the Word of God and evidenced by what God is doing in and through us that becomes clear and understood in our lifestyle. We said there were areas of loyalty and lifestyle and love, and in this text this morning we'll see that these areas of loyalty and lifestyle and love in, in John's letter kind of all overlap in this section. And while the love factor, later on as we get into chapter 4 and right around the Valentine's Day, it works out great, the, the 12th and the 19th of that month, we'll really focus on uh, love as a volitional act, an act of our own will, a choice that we make to love. And while the, the love factor will be further developed by this text, God's love for us, is directly related to this matter of loyalty and faithfulness and obedience 
and the lordship of Christ that becomes evident in our life. It not only becomes evident in our life, it becomes an evidence of authentic Christianity through our lives. Are you for real? Are you loyal to your Lord Jesus Christ? Is there this pattern of faithfulness? And how does that relate to love this morning? We'll see it in the text. And the first way we see it is, is like this. I am loyal because of the love that was demonstrated to me. I am loyal. Something's got to motivate loyalty, right? I am loyal because of the love that was demonstrated to me. We saw at the end of chapter 1, there was this struggle for this pursuit of righteousness, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. How can he do that? What qualifies Jesus Christ to just forgive and eradicate our sins? In verses 1 and 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. Romans chapter 6, 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, he says, that we would use grace as a license to sin. And so he says, I'm writing you things so that you quit compartmentalizing your life and saying, here's the religious side over here, and, and here is the flesh over here, and so I do the spiritual things in the spirit, and I do the fleshly things. Remember, they had given in to some of those docetic views where they compartmentalized things and said, hey, what I do with the body is not sin, what I do in the spirit, and so or what I do in the body, it's okay if it's sin. What I do in the spirit is not sin. And so they try to compartmentalize their life. And we talked about how dangerous that is for us here in the 21st century to try to say, I've got my life of faith over here, and I've got my life of sin over here, and act like everything is okay because we're building this false dichotomy just like the Gnostics were doing in the first century. So we struggle with sin. He's writing these things so we choose rather to walk in the spirit than in the flesh. And he says, but if we do sin, we have an advocate, one who stands as our attorney before the Lord of the universe, Jesus himself, the righteous one, saying, but Father, I've paid the price for their sin on Calvary's cross. He himself, verse 2, is the propitiation for our sin. He's the atoning sacrifice. It's, it's hard to put in the English language all that this word means, but Paul said that Christ not only died for our sins, but Christ did what? He became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it's not that God, as the judge of the universe, said, okay, I'm not going to have to pour out my wrath on sin. It's not that God said, I'm not going to have to pour out my wrath on those who have sin in their life. It's that God poured out his wrath, and Jesus Christ stood in our place and absorbed the wrath of God. He became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness for God. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, it says, but also those of the whole world. Now, that phrase has caused all kinds of debate, and I would love to say that, that we have uh, fully understood everything that that phrase means, but uh, conservative, Bible-believing scholars still debate on this whole thing about the sins of the world, and sometimes it leads into uh, two different extremes. 
One of those extremes is called universalism, where it says, because Jesus died for the sins of the world, that everyone who's ever been born is automatically saved. They're automatically covered in the blood of Jesus Christ because it says he died for the sins of the world. Others, uh, some of my more Reformed friends, would kind of go to the other side and, and almost do everything they possibly can to say, this is speaking, generalizing all of the elect in the world who would come to faith in Christ. And I would have no problem with that, except but then they begin to talk about something called limited efficacy. In other words, the, the power of the cross and the power of the blood of Jesus is limited only to those that God had elected from the foundation of the world. And do I believe in the doctrine of election? Absolutely, it's in the Bible. But I don't believe that the power of the cross is limited in any way for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In other words, I don't think we have to sit around worrying today and, and ask the question, was the cross enough for me? Can the cross be applied to my life? Listen, the cross, the atonement of Jesus Christ, is not limited in its availability. It is limited in its application. Whosoever will. Whoever believes in Him. As many as received Him, John says, to them He gave the power or the authority to become the children of God. So it's not universally applied, but it is universally available. That's, that's what I believe that John was saying right here, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're trying to get your mind around all that and this out of heaven, we won't be able to do all of that. We will not be able to comprehend all of that. And the whole thing about uh, election and predestination of whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to his image. But we do know this, that the cross is enough. And the power in the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed becomes the love of God demonstrated for me to cause me to want to live a life pleasing unto Him in every way. You never have to ask, was that price sufficient for my sin? Have I gone too far so that the blood of Christ could not atone for that? Never have to ask that question. If you're breathing this morning, then the Spirit of God can begin to convict your heart and draw you to Him. His love was demonstrated, and I am moved by that to live a life of loyalty unto Him. Last week, after church, Tina and I went and ate lunch. We got ready to leave the restaurant. And I went up to pay, and the young lady standing there at the register said, You're good. I try to be. <laughs> no, you're, it's, it's been paid for. What are you talking about it's been paid for? Somebody already took care of it. And I, I knew who had been in there, and, and I won't call any names, Corey Berriman, but somebody had been in there before me, uh, before Tina and I, and, and uh, I was told our meal had been taken care of. So a price had already been paid. There was nothing I could add to that and say, okay, but I want to pay a better price. The price had already been paid. And that's the way it is with our salvation. Now, if the gentleman who paid 
that day had walked up and said, um, I'm just going to pay for everybody in the restaurant. Maybe he did, I don't know, but I'm going to pay for everybody in the restaurant today. You know, whether they want me to or not, I'm just going to go ahead and pay for everybody. That would have been universal, right? Universally applied. But if he had walked up and said, you know what, I've, I've just I've, I've won the lottery or something. I've got a million dollars. I'm just going to write a check for a million dollars. Apply this to whoever can believe that I'm doing this. Uh, apply this to, any, uh, to whoever would, would, would receive it. Uh, listen, if they don't believe it, they don't want to receive it, fine, let them pay. But, but whoever will, then you would say a million dollars. Man, that is more than enough. More than enough. But not necessarily applied. And I believe that the cross of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus laid down his life for the sins of the world, is a shout to this world to say, my death, my atoning sacrifice is more than enough, and you will never have to wonder when you come to a place you're ready to put your faith and trust in him, did that supply was it sufficient for my sin, for my father and mother, for my son and daughter, for my cousins, for my neighbors, for the people in the uttermost parts of the world? Was that sin enough for nations struggling with terrorism and things like was that? Was that price that was paid enough to cover their sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. So he says, not only my sins, but listen, he... The, the, the price was paid for the sins of the world. It's available, but it's limited in application to whosoever will, whoever would put their faith and trust in him and receive it. What's, what's the point? You don't have to worry. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to question your salvation based on was the price that Jesus paid really sufficient. Maybe my sin is too vile. Pastor, you don't know where I've been, you don't know what I've done, and you don't know the guilt I struggle with day in and day out. The cross was enough to cover the sins of the world. So we learn from that that the love of God is God providing his best. How does that motivate loyalty? Listen, if God can love me enough, if he can love you enough, that he would send his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sin and for my sin, if he loves me that much, do you think his commands are going to be something that lead me astray? Do you think his plan and his will for my life will be anything less? He's already proven, church, that he gives us his very best. He gives us what is needed most. And so when he gives us his commands and when he calls us to a life of loyalty and dedication to him, is he going to give us anything less than his best? Absolutely not. Not the God who would give his only son for the sins of the world. He would not give us anything less than his best. His commands will move us towards spiritual maturity. In other words, if we're uh, obedient to his commands, we're going to be doing things that cause us to, to worship and learn and grow and nurture our faith. It will lead not only to maturity, but a morality. We will seek to, to live a life pleasing unto him, not because we're trying to earn his favor, but now, because we're motivated by the love that he has shown us, and then we will be about his mission. Those areas of the commands, you look at all of the commands of Scripture, and it will fall into those three categories. My maturity, my morality, and my mission. And God is saying in all of those things, I have your best in mind, and I demonstrated it when I sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins. And so you get in on all of those things. 
because of the love that was demonstrated. Secondly, listen, you'll see these begin to build and grow with one another here, but secondly, I am loyal because of the love deposited in me. There's a loyalty that I cannot show in and of myself because I am a sin-fallen creature. But when God puts His Spirit and His love inside of me, when He deposits it inside of me, now I have not only the desire to be obedient to Him, I have the power to be obedient to Him. Huey Lewis in the 80s sang about the power of love, and he was talking about man's love. Real power is when God deposits his love inside of us. Look at verse 3. This is how we are sure that we have come. To know him. There's that word know again. To, to walk with him, to be in relationship with him. We are sure that we, are know, we know him, that we've come to know him by keeping his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him without keeping his commands, he says, is a liar and the truth is not in him. You cannot continue in sin, disobedient to his commands, disregarding what God says. Now wait a minute, he just said if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We're talking about a life of continual disobedience and disregard for the commands, the principles, and precepts of God. A lack of a love for the word of God, the direction of God in my life. Whoever keeps his word, he says, verse 5, After he's told us, if we, if we say that we know him and we, we disregard his commands, we're a liar. Whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is perfected, it's manifest, it's, to go with our theme here, it's made real. The love of God is deposited in us, it's made real in us. And he says, this is how we know that we are in him loyalty seen in our obedience to him the love of christ empowering and motivating that see it's he's not talking about religion here that you got re religious and you figured out the religious checklist and so that you well i did a b c and d today and so that's a good sign do you realize in the prisons today one of the fastest growing religions is islam and that there are a lot of people that are coming to islam and they will say i was attracted to the structure I was attracted to the fact that they have five pillars and it gave me something to do at different points of the day and different points of the year. And so I felt better about myself and I felt better about the possibility of knowing God because of something that I did. That is religion. And sometimes we embrace a form of Christianity that gives us a checklist and there are some people here, you know what I'm talking about, some of you that are the kind of the high type A people, that you get that endorphin kick when you check things off the checklist, and yeah, I'm getting it done, and listen, there's nothing wrong with that personality type, and I thank God for people with that personality type in my life, but listen, if you have a religious checklist, and you begin to go, okay, well I did this today, I did that today, I was good here, I was good there, and you begin to think that somehow that's earning favor with God. You've got a big dose of religion, but you're missing out on the relationship where the Spirit of God and the love of God is deposited in you, and it works its way out and becomes manifest in your life. It's not religion. It's not trying to earn God's love. It's, it's not even trying to repay God's love because that's too big of a price. You can't pay it back. 
It's allowing God's love to work itself out in your life. Not at a religious obligation, but because of a real love he's put in your heart. In chapter 5 and verse 3 that we'll get to later, he'll say that the commands of God are no longer burdensome to us. That means that when we begin to grow in, in our maturity as Christians, we no longer feel like, well, I, I'm doing this because I have to do this. Well, you know, I, I know I ought to go to church, preacher. I ought to, but I just didn't feel like it. It's, it's not burdensome anymore. I, I, pastor, I know I ought to serve on that ministry team. Ought to. When God puts his love in your heart, you can't wait to. It's working itself out because of your love for God and your love for people, those greatest commands, loving God and loving others. You just can't wait to get in on what he has for you. The lifestyle, the principles he gives for marriage and family. It's not like, well, I ought to do this for my wife. No, now you want to because God has put something inside of your heart. That shows that you are maturing in your faith. It's becoming real in your life and you have moved from, from looking at the commands of God as being burdensome to now saying, I'm obedient to his commands because I see that that's what I want to do. The love that he's deposited in me has given me the love and the power to walk in it. And so he uses that word walk again in verse 6. He says, the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. And 1 Peter 2.21 speaks of that as walking in his steps even when we're being persecuted in this life. See, we, we, we feel like as long as we're outwardly doing what we're supposed to be doing, we're okay. And sometimes, listen, sometimes somebody's heart can be working itself out and they haven't come to the place outwardly where it, it, it's all what it should be at that point. And there are others who outwardly can kind of put on a show, but there's nothing real on the inside. Like the little boy, remember the story, he was obstinate, he was stubborn, and his mom, you know, he got in, in, in kind of bad sorts with his mom one day, and, and she's getting on to him, and she finally just, because he wanted to talk back and he wanted to interrupt, she said, be quiet and sit down. And so he shut his mouth and folded his arms, and he looked at her. And she said, sit down. And finally he realized that his mom had more willpower than him, and also she could dial up dad and he would ring a bell. So he decided, I'm going to sit down. So still stubborn, gritting his teeth, he sits down. And she said, good. And he said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Sometimes we look at the, the laws and the commands of God on our life as, well, I'm doing this, but I don't want to do this. And we're missing out on the joy that comes from a genuine heart transplant, a change that God is doing in our life. If you're often saying this, I'll do it. I don't want to. I'll do it because it needs to be done or I'll do it because it's the right thing to do. Listen, there, there's a place early in your faith walk where that may be the case at times, but as you mature in the faith, 
that should begin to dissipate and there should be more and more times where you're finding yourself saying, I'll do it because I can't help but do it because of the love that Christ has put in my heart and in my life for him and for this world. It's the love that's working its way out because he deposited it in us. This is how we know we're in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk as he walked. And I want us to see finally that I am loyal because of the love that is demanded of me. There comes a place where we can say, listen, I just want to know what his commands are because I can't wait to do it. I just want to know what his demands on my life are so that I can begin to show my love for him and, and my loyalty and my willingness to follow him. No, his, his commands are not burdensome anymore. Loyalty is expressed in what love demands of us. It begins to be that which is the voice that is heard in our hearts. So flip over to chapter 3. Look down at verse 18. He says, little children, we must not love in word or speech, but in deed and truth. That is how we will know we are of the truth and will convince our hearts in his presence. Because if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. Knowing the will of God, listen, is so much more important than just knowing how you feel that day. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and we can receive whatever we ask of him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. You say, well, that means we, we can kind of get selfish with our prayers at that point? No, if we're, if we're loving Him and serving Him and, and, and desiring to fulfill His will, then even our prayers become prayers that are in line with the will and the purposes and plans of God. And God loves to delight Himself in the prayers of the people who are following Him. If we delight ourselves in Him, he gives us the desires of our heart because we're desiring his will. Now, this is his command, verse 23, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in them. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit that he has given us. When he speaks of the, the conviction, the, the conscience there, the Greek word there, cardia, it speaks of the heart. Something's taking place on the inside that's brought about a new loyalty. The heart is now desiring to do his commands because he's given us a new heart. In, in verses 21 through 24 that we just looked at, he, he begins to move from the word heart to now he kind of closes out talking about his spirit living inside of us. Remember, we're talking about here evidence of whether this thing is real or not. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, we read that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And so now... We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and we can be loyal because 
the demands of love in our life that are coming from what God has placed in us, as we saw in chapter 2, are now coming and emerging out through us. In other words, when I am for real, when my relationship with Christ is genuine, I, I go back to what we talked about to begin with. I have His provision, His atoning sacrifice. I have love's demonstration for me. And then I begin to understand He deposited that love in me, so I not only have provision, now I have His power at, at work inside of me. And so I'm seeing what God provided, and that's my motivation to loyalty and, and to be obedient to His commands, because He's going to give me commands that are in line with what He has that's best for me. And now I have His power, that love that is deposited in me. And here in chapter 3, we see that not only that, but now that we've got this love living inside of us, we have His passion. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, I want you to know, if we're out of our minds, if you think our obedience to Christ, if you look at our radical obedience to Christ and you say, man, they're just, they're out of their gorge, man. They, th those folks are crazy. He says, it's because we're compelled by the love of Christ. We're compelled by the love of Christ. We're giving our lives to this calling. We're giving our lives to this mission. The commands are no longer burdened, but we are compelled by the very love of Christ to give our all to Him. A lot of the commands of Scripture that you, you see and, and you know and in your walk with God and going all the way back to when you grew up in church or Sunday school or when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ and you're saying, yeah, those aren't burdensome. As a matter of fact, I just realized that there's a lot of common sense in just obe obeying the Word of God. But then when God begins to take those areas of maturity and those commands that have to do with morality and He takes it up a notch and He says, I want it to be part of your mission in life and your passion in life. And He begins to to give you a specific application of Scripture. I often tell our hermeneutic students that the meaning is usually one in any given text, but the applications are many. And so when the Holy Spirit begins to show you personally how to apply these commands and principles and precepts in God's Word missionally, in other words, God is saying, here's the calling I have on your life, and here's how you're going to flesh out my principles and my precepts and my commands, be it to a, a workplace or to a school or to a community, to your neighborhood, or to a literal mission somewhere around the world, then we begin to say, oh, wait a minute, uh, maybe the commands of God are a little bit burdensome. Paul says we were compelled by the love of Christ. We couldn't help it because of the great love that he demonstrated for us, the love he deposited in us, and the love that is demanding us to go forth. What's your calling? In the 1890s, well over a century ago, three, three men, Walter Gowan, Roland Bingham, Thomas Kent, were pioneer missionaries to the Sudan, going where missionaries dared not to go for in danger of losing their lives. Unfortunately, two of these men, Gowan and Kent, were killed, lost their lives, and their bodies were never brought back from Africa. They were buried 
somewhere in the region of present day in Nigeria. Roland Bingham, their friend, was able to bring some personal belongings to one of their moms. And when she presented the personal belongings, said, I'm so sorry. So sorry that when your son gave his life to this mission, when, when your son said, I, I, I'm going to go with this team and we're going to take the gospel to a people group that so desperately needed, I'm so sorry that it cost him his life. And as he was ready to embrace her and say, I'm so sorry that you lost your son, she said, I had rather my son be buried in a Nigerian desert than to be at home disobedient to his Lord. We say that about our lives. We say that about our children. Church, when we take seriously our desire to reach our neighbors, the nations, and the next generation, are we willing to say we want to be loyal, we want to be faithful, we want our allegiance to be there, come what may. See, we don't even want it to cost them a place on the team. We don't want it to cost them uh, popularity in their school. Young people, we don't want to trade in what this world has to offer sometimes for what only Christ can give. It sounds like a cliche that's been said so many times and put on so many posters. Only one life is soon to pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's be radical. Let's be like the apostle Paul was where we say the love of Christ compels me to do what he's commanded and called me to do. And it's not burdensome. I just can't help myself because of what he's doing in me. Would you bow your heads with me? Ask yourself this question. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Is this thing for real? Am I just going to church today to get my weekly dose of religion? Or is this thing for real? Do I really believe Christ has died for me and that he's doing something in me? Or is my faith being evidenced by my loyalty to him? If you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, I want to plead with you right where you sit. If the Spirit of God is convicting you, drawing you at this moment, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right where you can sit, right where you sit, you can say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sin. I believe you rose victoriously, and I give you my heart, my life today. I turn from sin and self. I ask for your forgiveness for that sin. And I put my faith in your sacrifice and your resurrection. And I'm asking for the life that only you can give. It's not the words of the prayer, but it's believing on Jesus Christ. Not only in the head, with all your heart, trusting in him. If that's your desire today, if that's your profession today, would you just say, Pastor Robbie, pray for me. That's my prayer. Just raise your hand. Anybody at all. That's the prayer of my heart today. Just hold it up where I can see it. Anybody else? How many of you would say, once again, as a believer, as a Christ follower, I want to say before you, before God today, whatever his commands require of me in application, I want to love him so much. 
I want to, the love to be so real that I would follow him to the ends of the earth or wherever that would be. Just raise your hand and say, pray for me. That's where I want to be. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your great love that was demonstrated for us on a cross. Thank you for the love that was deposited in us. Now I pray that we would live out what it demands of us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.